sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. This is part two, a second interview with Professor Randall Balmer, John Phillips Professor in Religion at Dartmouth College and author of the recently published book, Bad Faith, Race, and the Rise of the Religious Right. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, Professor Balmer. Happy to be here, Alan. Thank you. So in part one, we talked about the common myth of the founding of the religious right, that it was really based on opposition to Roe versus Wade and abortion. Uh, So today, I want to talk about the real rise, the real issue at the heart of why evangelical Protestants finally did join with Roman Catholics in kind of a political endeavor, and you attribute it to race. So where do you begin the story? Well, we can start almost anywhere. I can go back all the way to the 19th century if you want to, but I expect we probably don't have time for that. And I want to put at least the middle background in the sense that evangelicals were not organized politically in the middle decades of the 20th century. Now, some evangelicals voted. Many did not. Many weren't even registered to vote in those years. And it wasn't really until the 1970s that there begins to be a sort of an awakening of uh, evangelical uh, political interests. Now, again, to harken back to the previous conversation, uh, that's generally attributed to the Roe v. Wade decision of 1973, and that is not true. I mean, I I think we we pretty much demolished that in our previous conversation, although I'm happy to revisit that that, uh, element as well. But uh, what really gets them interested in politics, frankly, is, first of all, Jimmy Carter's run for the Democratic nomination in the presidency in 1976. And many evangelicals voted for Jimmy Carter in 76, I think, simply for the novelty of being able to vote for one of their own. That is to say, somebody who was uh, a Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher, avowed born-again Christian, used that language consistently throughout the campaign. And that's what bring, begins to bring them into the political arena. But as we know, those same evangelicals turned rather dramatically against Carter over the course of the uh, late 1970s. So the question is, why? Why did evangelicals suddenly begin to become organized politically in the late 1970s? Well, again, the standard narrative, which is false, is that uh, had to do with abortion. That's simply not the case. And I began to kind of get a clue about this when um, um, I attended a, a small conference in Washington, D.C. in November of 1990. It was, uh, I was invited to this uh, gathering, and I got into, uh, into this uh, hotel conference room with about maybe 30 people altogether, maybe a little bit more than that, maybe 3,000 people altogether. And it turned out that it was kind of a who's who of religious right, including Ralph Reed, who was head of uh, Christian Coalition, uh, Ed Dobson, who had been uh, Jerry Falwell's uh, surrogate at uh, Moral Majority, Carl F.H. H. Henry, the uh, founding editor of Christianity Today magazine, uh, Donald Wildman, head of the American Family Association, um, Richard Vigory, the conservative direct male uh, mogul, and significantly, Paul Weyrich, who I knew at the time, was the uh, really the architect of religious right. He's the one who brought uh, this movement together. 
And in the first session, uh, Weirich made this uh, kind of impassioned speech. He said, let's remember, abortion is not what got this movement going. We didn't get involved in politics because of abortion. We got involved in politics for another reason, which I'll come to in a moment. And at the break, immediately following that first session, I went to him and I said, I want to make sure I understand you correctly, that abortion is He said, absolutely not. I couldn't get abortion a hearing among these people until uh, very late in the 1970s. And he said what got them interested in politics was the defense of tax-exempt status for racially segregated institutions, so-called segregation academies, and, of course, Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina. And that conversation uh, really got me started in trying to uncover what I call the real origins of uh, the religious right. And it turns out the real origins of the religious right lie in a defense of racial segregation against the Internal Revenue Service in the 1970s, and nothing to do with abortion. So part of the history that I think most of us are very unfamiliar with is that following the Supreme Court decision in Brown versus Board of Education in the 1950s, um, requiring desegregation of public schools, that throughout, particularly the Bible Belt states, um, Protestants especially began to establish literally tens of thousands of segregated private schools. And these days, we just take for granted that, of course, it, well, race discrimination is illegal, but it wasn't always so. So it's hard for us to understand this history is about. But in the 1970s, you still had all of these racially segregated uh, private Christian academies. And now talk about what was it that the IRS was doing that uh, Christians, evangelicals felt was a threat to their way of life and their education of their kids? Well, the, the real court case that decides the matter is something called Green v. Connolly, which was decided at the District Court in the District of Columbia on June 30, 1971. The background for that case was Holmes County, Mississippi where in the first year of desegregation, the number of white students dropped from over 700 to 28. The second year of desegregation in Holmes County, Mississippi, the number of white students in the public schools dropped to zero. At the same time, three segregation academies, church-sponsored, as you suggested earlier, were applying to the Internal Revenue Service for tax-exempt status. And a group of parents in Holmes County, Mississippi said, this isn't right. So they began to file suit. Uh, this case winds its way through the judicial system. It's joined with another case, finally comes up to district court in District of Columbia in 1970. And uh, the ruling on the part of the court was that any institution that engages in racial discrimination or racial segregation is not by definition a charitable institution and therefore is not entitled to tax-exempt status. And that is the decision as the IRS in the 1970s begins to enforce that decision by interrogating these segregation academies and Bob Jones University about their racial policies. That is what got the attention of these evangelical leaders, including Jerry Falwell, who had his own segregation academy in Lynchburg, Virginia. That is what, according to Paul Weirich, and by the way, I've, I've confirmed this <laughs> uh, probably a hundred times from a hundred different sources. Uh, that is what motivated 
evangelicals to become involved in politics in the 1970s. Again, it had nothing whatsoever to do with abortion, which evangelicals at the time considered a Catholic issue. So, you know, to kind of take a step back, I'm kind of seeing a parallel with the issues around the Civil War and the post-Civil War amendments to the Constitution, the balance of power between, you know, states' rights and the federal government, because here the federal government now is imposing, really, on, you know, what people are doing in the states. And I think part of the story you tell in your book, Bad Faith, Race, and the Rise of the Religious Right, is that evangelicals were content to kind of be in their fundamentalist sort of uh, exile, if you will, after the Scopes fiasco back in the in the 1920s with the evolution creation issue. Uh, but now that the feds were kind of interfering with their isolation, it kind of uh, woke the beast, so to speak. It did, and it's that issue that Weirich uses to deflect attention from the fact that this is a movement in defense of racial segregation. (laughs) Uh, He says, this is a matter of religious freedom. And all of a sudden, it got the attention, uh, you know, that it resonated with uh, the fallout and also with evangelicals. Forgetting that tax exemption is a form of public subsidy. (laughs) Now, we all know that, right? Uh, Churches, Mm -hmm. you know, colleges, universities, like where I teach, they don't pay taxes because they're considered to be a charitable organization. And so uh, Weirich very, very definitely changes the topic, changes the subject from a defense of racial segregation all of a sudden to a defense of religious freedom, right? And by the way, this is resonating today <laughs> in the current political climate as well. Uh, the same sort of arguments are being made. Well, and we're going to get there, but I have to observe, you know, my kids' generation. Um, they are very aware, my kids are, that the conservative Christian church in America has always used religion and religious freedom arguments in defense of discriminatory attitudes. And so this, you know, to the extent that the church today asserts the right to its values and practices with respect to the LGBT community, um, it faces a great deal of resistance from the younger generation who just see this as of a piece with the history of slavery, Jim Crow, opposition to integration of the public schools. And it, it certainly makes it much more problematic for religious institutions to, you know, to assert the right to retain their tax-exempt status, for example, and and practice what they regard as, as biblical values of sexuality. But that's a whole other topic we could go to. Uh, but today, race has become front and center again within the sort of culture war divide. And we've now seen, you know, in addition to kind of uh, abortion, and LGBT rights being kind of two of the the big ticket concerns of religious conservatives, we've now added to that a third, which is critical race theory. Is this really kind of a a return to the roots of opposition to, you know, really to kind of a racist uh, uh, tinge on the founding of the movement? How do you see the opposition? And maybe you should first take a minute to just explain how the right regards 
critical race theory. It's not the same as what it actually is. But in the couple minutes we have left, talk about whether critical race theory really is a return to the roots. Well, I think it is in many ways. And it's been uh, kind of uh, constructed as a straw man, I think, to, to the greatest extent, as, as you suggest in your question. Uh, you know, the notion that uh, that all whites are racist and that sort of thing. But race theory is not talking about that. It's talking about the structural, systematic realities that uh, make for inequality between the races or among the races. And uh, so it's been sub- subjected to caricature, and I think that's uh, part of the real problem to any real post discussion about race. Uh, and in terms of the religious right, I think, uh, I, you know, I want to be careful to say, and I am careful to say in the book, that uh, all evangelicals are not racist, and it doesn't mean that even people who voted for Donald Trump are racist. I'm not saying that at all. But you're here you have a movement, and I think it's important to come to terms with it. And if you want to use the lens of critical race theory or not, that's up to you. But uh, here you have a movement that has been constructed on racism, and there's no way to prettify that reality. And that's not to say that everything that the movement has advocated is wrong or somehow morally suspect, uh, although I think much is, but and not everything. But I think we have to come to terms that this is a movement that is founded on racism. And I think it's important to acknowledge that and to, to deal with that and to do some sort of um, almost ideological reparations for that, if nothing else. Uh, because of the analogy I use in the book is that you can have this beautiful, beautiful building with all sorts of uh, fancy appointments and filigrees and so forth. But if the foundation is rotten, if it's constructed on rotten timbers, then I think the whole structure is compromised. And that's how I would characterize the strike. Well, that's a good sobering note to end on. Our guest today, Randall Palmer, his book, Bad Faith, Race, and the Rise of the Religious Right. It's a short book. It's a compelling read and available wherever books are sold. Professor Palmer, Thank you so much again for your time and for being with us on Freedom's Ring. Once again, my pleasure. Thank you. Again, this has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Rennock. Until next week, let freedom ring.